This is Cowboys on the Commons, a podcast about cooperative law, economics, policy, and culture, brought to you by the Socialists at Solidarity House Cooperative in Laramie, Wyoming. As Iran responds to the coronavirus pandemic, facing one death every 10 minutes and 50 new infections every hour, according to a health ministry spokesperson, it must contend with debilitating U.S.-led sanctions that severely limit access to critical medical supplies. Despite nominal humanitarian exceptions, many governments, firms, and financial institutions are unwilling to risk backlash from the U.S. by doing business with Iran. And without reliable access to oil revenues or credit, existing capacities are stretched thin. The White House has signaled that it remains committed to its policy of maximum pressure, blacklisting 12 additional companies for trading in Iranian petrochemicals. And the decision has been rebuked by the UK, China, Russia, and others, including within the United States, particularly in the context of global efforts to contain a pandemic. Although the United States has imposed sanctions on the Islamic Republic regularly since the 1979 revolution, the latest round followed the U.S.'s unilateral withdrawal from the Iranian nuclear deal. At the start of this year, the U.S. also assassinated Qasem Soleimani, a top Iranian general and domestically popular figure, in a drone strike near Baghdad to widespread protest with Iraq's parliament quickly passing a resolution to expel American troops from the country. As of now, the troops remain, enforced by the threat of U.S. sanctions, while Washington has flagrantly stepped up military aggression against ostensibly Iranian proxy militias in Iraq, who have nevertheless played an important role in supporting Iraq's struggle against the so-called Islamic State as part of its popular mobilization forces deputy commander of which was killed in the same strike as Soleimani. The preemptive invasion in 2003 was based on empty promises of a better future for the Iraqi people and a more stable and prosperous Middle East, free of fictitious weapons of mass destruction. In the 17 years since, the region and the world continue to grapple with its consequences. Conservative estimates place the amount of people killed in war in the hundreds of thousands, largely civilians, and such counts likely underrate the actual impact. Regardless, millions more have been displaced by the war and its aftershocks. Thousands of tons of depleted uranium munitions, with 60% of the radioactivity of natural uranium, known for long-term health effects, were used by uh, the U.S. in Iraq during the Gulf War and since 2003. As a result, rates of cancer, infant mortality, and congenital disorders have risen dramatically. Speaking of the Gulf War, estimates place the death toll of the UN sanctions imposed on Iraq from 1990 to 2003 between 300,000 and more than a million people, many children. As with the present sanctions against Iran, these targeted Iraq's oil revenue, squeezing its import capacity in the wake of targeted campaigns against its civilian infrastructure. And three decades of war, sanctions, and U.S. occupation have left the Iraqi healthcare system unprepared for the coronavirus pandemic, facing shortages of equipment and medical workers. A few days ago, I talked to Kathy Kelly of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, 
about the Iranian sanctions specifically and the fruits of U.S. brutality in the Middle East in general. Kathy Kelly has an article over The Progressive, Making the Pandemic Worse, in which she writes, U.S. sanctions against Iran, which the Trump administration has cruelly strengthened, continue to collectively punish extremely vulnerable people. The United States' current maximum pressure policy severely undermines Iranian efforts to cope with the ravages of COVID-19, causing hardship and tragedy while contributing to the global spread of the disease. The policy the United States has followed under the Trump administration toward Iran has, I believe, been cruel and wrongheaded. Uh, the way that uh, Professor Juan Cole of Michigan put it was, um, he said, basically, the United States has been at war with Iran since uh, March of 2018 because of the economic warfare, because of the way that the economic sanctions have so aggressively affected uh, a, a steep decline in Iran's economy. And and what did the Iranians do to the United States, you know, to earn this? In fact, you know, very laboriously, their foreign minister, Jawad Zarif, and uh, at the time under Obama, John Kerry had worked to come together with a plan. It was called Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action so that the Iranians would uh, reduce significantly their ability to move toward nuclear weaponry. And the International Atomic Energy Association said, yeah, they're complying with everything that we asked them to do. They poured cement into machinery that was meant to possibly upgrade uranium, and uh, they, they, they cut off their capacity to acquire plutonium. They made all of the sites that the uh, IAEA wanted to visit accessible. But President Trump decided that uh, this was an Obama uh, foreign policy achievement, and so he was going to undo it. And the undoing has meant um, that the sanctions returned in a way that has made it so, so difficult for Iran. Uh, Iran was producing 2.5 million barrels per day oil in 2017, and 70% of the government's receipts were coming from the oil business. And so, you know, you take away 70% of their income, basically, and this was just causing staggering problems in terms of the economy. And of course, you know, the United States seems to suggest, well, good, then the Iranian people can take things in hand and vote their experiment. But it doesn't work that way. We surely didn't see that in Iraq. And once, once the most vulnerable people, the elderly and the sick and the children, the children start to die, you can't say, well, we had to punish them because they're, they're accountable to change their government. Um, so, so now the, the Iranians have been down to a few hundred thousand barrels per day, 2.5 million down to a few hundred thousand barrels per day. And the sanctions interfere with things like shipping, uh, insurance, and uh, banking and financial institutions. So that now with the coronavirus having spread so seriously across Iran, it's one of the third hardest hit countries in the world, the United States can very piously say, oh, well, we're not interfering with them getting 
uh, medical supplies and medical equipment and medicines. But that's not the modern world. And you can't get those supplies unless you're shipping and your financial institutions and your insurance institutions are working. And so the Iranians are reeling. Now, one very uh, terrible consequence of that is that there are millions of Afghans who went over to Iran from beleaguered and war-gutted Afghanistan thinking, well, maybe I can find work and remittances back to my family. But now they can't find work and they certainly don't want to stick around to see if the coronavirus spread gets worse. And so just within a week and a half, 150,000 Afghans crossed out of the zone in Iran where the virus is uh, spreading so fast into Herat in Afghanistan. And then from there, went to Kabul, went to provinces all over Afghanistan. And so this means that Afghanistan will almost assuredly see quite a spike in cases of coronavirus. And they don't have any kind of a medical system to deal with an emergency. They uh, have had a crumbling, deteriorating medical care system. Well, the United States has eight bases in Afghanistan. And so in a way, I think the hardiness of the U.S. policy will ultimately also cause harm and disruption and sickness and disease for people in the United States as well. Regardless of this manifestation, which certainly does outline or, or underscore the, the cruelty of, the, of our current administration, uh, this sanctions regime is a bipartisan sanctions regime from the, from the point of view of U.S. politics, isn't it? Well, I think that there are Democrats who were impressed with what um, John Kerry and President Obama had put in place and uh, don't like it that the Trump administration uses foreign policy as a way to, um, you know, kind of try and thump their chest and say, now look what we've put in place. We're on a different track. But yes, by and large, I think the, um, the readiness of the U.S. Congress and Senate to choose war, whether economic or military war, uh, first, without uh, first and foremost saying anything but war. We want to try every other diplomatic alternative. We want to uh, place less emphasis on border distinctions because we live in a world where people have to cooperate to deal with climate catastrophe and now, of course, with the coronavirus as well. That hasn't been the inclination of the Congress and Senate. A, a few people I think about Bernie Sanders and Rohana, Barbara Lee, but you know, the fact that you can name those people who are clamoring for diplomacy so easily because they stand out so much is, is itself disturbing. As far as you know, is there any kind of end game uh, from the point of view of the Trump administration for, uh, these, for these sanctions? Uh, what what realistically would they be trying to accomplish by uh, by turning the screws at this point? I suppose that, you know, the situation that they've set up, which is that since um, Iran cannot compete with or struggle with the United States on a level playing field of warning, and I mean, I'm, I, I'm certainly wishing for pacifism all the time. I wish that the Iranians would say, you know what, we don't want to try to be at war with you. But but given what the United States has set up, the Iranian hardliners then start to emphasize and advise alternative kinds of war. They sometimes 
uh, will talk about as asymmetric warfare. They figure out ways that they can uh, hurt the United States or hurt United States allies uh, without um, being involved in a, a conventional sort of war. And now the United States wants to hit them for that and say, no, you can't do that to us. We can come at you even harder. We can, you know, you might say tighten the, the thumb screws. So what is the what is the Iranian hardline establishment? Well, you know, quite possibly they are assisting Hezbollah in Lebanon and, and, and Hamas in Gaza and the Houthis in their war with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, but I, you know, a comparison. <laughs> I mean, maybe the Iranians can be accused of meddling affairs in their very uh, close at hand region uh, where they share borders, and certainly they have a strong, strong influence in the Iraqi government. But when the United States meddling is examined, I mean, it's, it's stunning what we do. We have loaded up the country of Israel with yearly shipments of weapons and material for war, and we've, we've protected the Israelis as they possess and still develop a nuclear arsenal that has at least 85 thermonuclear weapons. The International Atomic Energy Association ever invested Israel? Never, never, because Israel says, oh no, we won't be the first to introduce nuclear weapons into the region. The United States has protected Israel and its nuclear weapon buildup and is also helping Saudi Arabia to move in that direction of being able to first get nuclear energy and from there it's not so distant to be able to acquire nuclear weapons. So the United States is certainly meddling in the region by its support for uh, enemies of Iran, primarily Saudi Arabia and Israel. It's also meddling by its interference. I mean, we, we've recently been bombing sites in Iraq and threatening to do more. We uh, killed General Hassan Soleimani in Iraq, but at the same time, along with him, four of his five officials of military groups that are, you know, were pretty important. ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Iraq were, were killed. The United States uh, meddling in the region also includes uh, insisting, again, this goes back to economic sanctions, but insisting that India, Japan, South Korea, and Europe do not buy Iraq's oil. And, and, and saying, you do. If you do buy their oil, then we'll punish you. Uh, so the United States extremely meddlesome and has continued to promote U.S. goals that are, I think, actually in many ways the goals of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and General Dynamics and these major, major weapon-making companies that say, more or less, uh, you better have a war going somewhere in the world. Otherwise, how are we going to sell our products? And so uh, one of the most vulnerable places for U.S meddlesome uh, policies working continues to be in the Middle East and certainly with Iran in the epicenter of that. Uh, I'm reading the uh, your article in The Progressive and uh, the, in the concluding paragraph of that article, you write, as COVID-19 continues to spread, many people worldwide are evaluating the glaring deadly inequalities in our societies. 
one way to improve survival is to insist that the United States lift sanctions against Iran and instead support acts of practical care. What would what would that practical care look like? Well, certainly the United States could say to countries all around the world, um, we want to de-emphasize uh, borders and, and collaborate as much as we possibly can for wise distribution of resources and fair and equitable distribution of resources. I think another act of practical care would be for the United States to send um, people who have skills that are needed in other countries. You know, Cuba does it all the time and, and, and not only sends people in the wake of natural disasters, for instance, but those people stay for years and years and continue to help and, and build relationships between people inside of Cuba and people beyond. Now, I, I realize the United States is not in a position right now where we can say, oh, we'll send ventilators. We need every ventilator and face mask that we can. We can contribute in collaborations with scientists and with people who, you know, in, in many ways know a lot more than we do about the spread of disease because they're experiencing it in more intense ways. But, it, you know, this whole make America great again and America first and American exceptionalism, it, it's, it's a way of saying, you know, we really don't care. We really don't care what happens to people in other parts of the world. And I don't think that's true about people in the United States, but people are so dominated by fear uh, and constant uh, stoking of anxiety. So, you know, an action of practical care would be to put forward the kind of neighborliness you see people in many, many grassroots parts of the United States and in my neighborhood, I hope in yours, uh, trying to make sure that the people who are hardest hit by the coronavirus won't be isolated, trying to make sure there are deliveries of food to people living in open, raw situations outdoors, people without homes. So, I, you know, the practical care that comes natural to people can actually be a hallmark of our foreign policy by saying we're not going to base our foreign policy on threat and force, but rather on collaboration and scientific analysis of where um, the needs are the greatest. You know, I found myself the other day feeling uh, scornful toward and, and uh, very, uh, well, kind of shuddering in the face of an image of an open market and thinking, ugh, People have these open markets and they disturb, you know, habitats that cause viruses to be carried by animals and infect other people. And, and, and I'm a vegetarian and I suppose the idea of an open market somewhere in, in, in a country made me, made my blood curdle. And then I thought, Kathy Kelly, what are you thinking? The most brutal, barbaric, savage practices in the world today are those that are prepared by scientists developing nuclear weapons. It's savage and barbaric for the United States ever to fire an incendiary weapon in a civilian area, especially when we've hit hospitals as we have in Afghanistan, 
helped the Saudis do it in Yemen and used torture to try and get people to submit to our will. I, I, I want my view of the world to be centered on a, a sense of neighborliness and fairness, radical fairness, radical readiness to share resources, to share income, to share jobs, and, and just share the blame for what's gone wrong in our world. But then really resolve, we're not going to keep this up. We are going to change. The, the, seeing new norms daily is amazing and stunning. You know, I, I, I'm someone who hasn't been very approving of sports and entertainment as uh, a thing that dominates so much of people's time. I think it's sort of turned adults into big children all across our country. But, you know, overnight, poof, <laughs> sports and entertainment took a back seat, uh, closed down. So when we see these huge new norms coming, then I think it's a good time to align our lives with our deepest values and believe that can become the new norm, you know, never to kill, do no harm. Kathy Kelly also has a new piece up at our website, the website for this podcast, cowboysonthecommons.org on, among other things, how activists have continued peace vigils for Yemen and other places via online meetings during the current COVID-19 pandemic. We're going to wrap up with a little bonus recording, some notes on the first two chapters of Jane McLevy's book, No Shortcuts, a book about organizing and the importance of deep organizing. The book is being read closely by many chapters and caucuses around the country of the Democratic Socialists of America, including here in Southeast Wyoming, where we're trying to apply its many lessons to rural organizing. Before we play that clip, we also need to ask for your support during this difficult time. Solidarity House Cooperative, the worker-owned business that produces these podcasts, makes its content available for free without advertising, at least currently. If you can help us keep it that way, free and unadvertised, for just a few bucks a month, will you do it? Please go to patreon.com solidarityhouse and become a subscriber, especially if you like this content. You'll help keep it free, but you'll also get bonus content like future discussions of no shortcuts, full-length interviews, original music, and more, all for just $5 a month, of which every single penny goes into making our content relevant and free to the growing numbers of people around the world fed up with the system. That's patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. Please consider becoming a supporter today. And now, a little discussion about the beginning of the book, No Shortcuts. I feel like this is an unusual time for us to be discussing a book about organizing, since the picture of organizing that we have, the picture that we are used to, is one where people are marching together and sitting together in crowded rooms and planning direct action where people are in close quarters. And so... I think the shape and the picture of organizing is going to be very different for the time being. And DSA has, to its credit, been on top of both political demands and 
direct action regarding uh, COVID-19. And so I think that it's going to be interesting to see how those who are used to organizing in traditional ways, those who have lately been being taught as uh, new generations of activists have been taught this organizing in this these traditional ways and how this how there are maybe analogs to that organizing in a space where we may not be able to assemble together in mass uh, so I'm interested in that uh, there are several of the themes of the first two chapters that resonate with my experience and values and I want to talk about those for a few minutes. There's really four of them that really uh, jump out at me in terms of chapter one, which is the introduction, and chapter two, uh, which is this concept of whole worker organizing uh, that we hopefully will talk about in subsequent sessions. The first thing that jumps out to me is the centrality of labor, the importance of labor, and how what a bad idea it has been uh, and and actually what a good idea it was on the part of the ruling class to do a bunch of things over the decades, the past decades, that separated labor from other movements. And there's a long history of this. And uh, a lot of it really came into, uh, into its own uh, under in post-McCarthyism, after McCarthyism. Uh, because what happened prior to McCarthyism, prior to the, the sort of red scare of the 1950s, is that there was this sense where everybody could be involved in the labor movement and everybody could be talking about alternatives to capitalism from all kinds of different spheres of life. And as a result of McCarthyism, everyone lost their jobs or got intimidated or scared out of uh, and sometimes even worse, uh, you know, scared out of organizing around material issues, organizing around capitalism. So scholars and academics who up to that time had been involved in either Marxist politics or non-Marxist labor or socialist politics were scared away from doing that. And so suddenly, beginning in the 1960s, you see uh, a lot of scholarship that is about social movements, but it's no longer about anti-capitalist movements. Uh, and so it's almost as if they were trying to find safer ways to do their radicalism and sort of remove their radicalism from labor. And that happened with, I think, a lot of other things. Um, and then, of course, now that you have this fragmentary economy where people are all you know, so many people are independent contractors and so many people are 1099 workers uh, and, uh, and non-union workers in all these different contexts. Then again, labor is sort of pushed to this. It, it's, it's treated as an interest group, as this special interest group. And uh, I think the book talks about that a lot, does a good job talking about that. This is something also that Wyoming lacks perspective on. There's not, Wyoming's a right to work state, but even more than that, Wyoming is a state where the workforce is deliberately kept transitional, transitory, mobile, uh, and fragmented. The oil workers are, you know, they come in, they, they're seasonal workers, they're paid 
a bunch of money for a little short amount of time. There's no context where they have any relationship to their community. They're kept in separate camps. So the majority of industrial work in Laramie is fragmented and sectioned off and treated as seasonal work. And then there, you know, there are other economies, professional economies or service economies. And of course, Wyoming is a right to work state uh, means that there's not a lot of, of ability to organize. There are some unions in Wyoming uh, and there is a labor history in Wyoming, as well as a history of socialist and communist candidates uh, from earlier years in Wyoming. And I believe that it would be a good thing if the, uh, if Southeast Wyoming DSA eventually had the bandwidth and the personnel to do some diving into labor and socialist history in Wyoming. Uh, the second thing is the in the first two chapters that I that really jumped out at me is the the dignity, solidarity, and hopefulness of change. Uh, I think that it makes a lot of sense to say that workers care about dignity. That doesn't mean they don't care about material things, but that it's important for them in thinking about organizing ourselves uh, to understand that we're not just organizing for higher pay per se or for healthcare per se. We're organizing for power so that we can have those things, but in having those things, knowing that we can demand them, knowing that we're worth worth it to demand them, that's this concept of, of dignity. Uh, and, uh, I, and, and chapter one sort of begins with that concept, says that, you know, it's not just about material gain in labor struggles, it's also uh, about dignity. Um, solidarity comes into play a lot in chapter two. Uh, Solidarity among human beings can happen spontaneously as in a flood or fire or by design through organizing uh, is what it says on page 29. And I think that's also an interesting thing to apply to the current situation uh, to say what sort of solidarity is emerging in this, in, in this pandemic situation. Uh, And that, uh, also, you know, the, the chapter, chapter two also mentions public activists, uh, public activities, socializing workers to take a risk together, uh, the need for solidarity and confidence building. So that's all over the place, this notion of morale and solidarity. Uh, the third is the, this mention of uh, business interests colonizing the public sphere, including rulemaking bodies, this notion that CEOs and other owners uh, and people with interests in corporations and companies often also occupy these seats of power. And there's all kinds of examples of this, but the example that jumps out at me in Wyoming is the number of people on city councils and county commissions and in the legislature who have direct material interests in the uh, in deregulation and low wages and uh, manipulating the licensing process of getting businesses in and uh, 
the, 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 there's these two examples right now that are going on. You know, one is the struggle in Laramie uh, in Albany County with the Albany County Commission and the commissioners uh, who um, are, you know, two of them are, are vi- you know, very much business interest type of people uh, and they're extremely right wing. And not coincidentally, they vote against any sort of attempt to hold uh, the police, the cops, tra- uh, transparent or to accountability. Um, and this has been a huge issue here in the wake of the, the murder of Robin Ramirez um, because uh, they uh, are, you know, they're behaving in this very risk averse, but also anti-worker, anti-resident kind of mentality um, and really circling the wagons and have really been behaving abhorrently, in my opinion. Um, the other example is the county commission in Uinta County that voted uh, to authorize the sale of land uh, for the purpose of building this ICE prison, this um, this uh, immigration detention facility. Um, this is such a great example of how that process would look so much different and that deliberation would look so much different if people with workers' interests occupied seats on those bodies instead of just people with business interests. Uh, And so um, workers, of course, can use community networks and use other types of tactics to push back against that, but we have to organize in order to do that. The last thing I wanted to mention is this mention of the electability and reelectability of socialists. Uh, this may not be something that we will experience anytime soon here, but in other places, what I have noticed is, and of course the book talks about it in reference to unions, that unions have a long history of electing socialists to local positions and re-electing them, even though the majority of the people in the unions are not socialists. They are voting, though, for socialists. And the other example that I thought about with that was, well, uh, you know, lots of DSA candidates and lots of non-DSA socialist uh, candidates have been active in politics in the last several years around the country at the municipal level. And Kshama Savant in Seattle was re-elected to the city council uh, uh, despite uh, this, inc- the, despite Amazon spending millions of dollars specifically to try to unelect her, to try to defeat her in her re-election bid. And she ended up winning. And again, you know, these are, you know, there's a lot of professional tech sector people who are voting in this. There's a lot of, uh, you know, professional class people, people in the suburbs are voting, you know, as well as urban people. And they saw fit not only to re-elect a socialist, but to re-elect a radical socialist. Kashama is not a, you know, is, is not a, you know, sort of fuzzy, warm, fuzzy kind of, of democratic socialist. You know, she belongs to socialist alternative. Uh, she's very serious. And yet she won the confidence of people. And I think that there's something to be said about that. What did she do to win that confidence? How was she in tune? How did she attune herself to the needs of people in a way that almost transcended ideology and definitions, right? Like if you, obviously the people who are voting for her 
you know, if you were to survey them, not many of them would probably say, well, I'm a socialist, but they would say, I'm voting for one. What is it that makes that the case? How does that happen? And how can we, is there, you know, any way that we can try to model that, I think. So those are my things. Um, and uh, a lot of them have stuff to do with Wyoming, and I want to keep coming to that, but I also don't feel like we need to be held to just Wyoming applicability. I just think it's going to be helpful for us to, to be able to place some of that in our own backyard and see how much of this is actually applicable uh, to a very rural state with a very uh, transitive uh, and unstable uh, working class.